This is Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes. Hey, fellow spiritual beings, it's Mark. And this is Kelly with Radical Love Live. So, Kelly, what are we going to talk about today? This week, uh, we have a special guest in our studio with us. Uh, We'd like to say a welcome to Jennifer Allen. She's a third-year seminarian preparing for ordination at General Theological Seminary here in New York City. Welcome, Jennifer. It's good to have you. Well, thanks for having me here. So how's things in seminary? (laughs) Well, I'm wrapping up my last semester of three years, so it's going well, but it's also starting to go really fast, really fast. I actually formalized the plan for my future ministry in Kansas. So that's very exciting. It's signed and sealed. So Oh wow. Wow. Sounds like congratulations are in order. I'm very excited about it, yes. Well, all right. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. So now that you've teased us with that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this project? Yeah. So um I'm gonna be going back to Kansas and there's three acres of ground in the middle of Topeka that currently is just a lawn. And on that ground at one point was Bethany College for Women. Mm -hmm. Um, in the 1800s, and still existing on the ground is a building that was the laundry, which is where my office will be. So... um, But Did they leave any of the laundry, laundry machines there? That could be really <laughs> no. handy. I think the laundry machines might have been hands. Uh, but um, mm. as part of kind of honoring the land and the history of empowerment of women that happened in that land, we're going to be working on developing um, a prairie restoration site that will be give us the option for some outdoor worship. And uh, we'll be also reaching out to the community around us, which includes a fairly good-sized population of homeless people for a town the size of Topeka. Um, There is also a high population of trafficking going on in Topeka. And you mean human trafficking? Human trafficking, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there is also a young professional element that's moving into the area. So reaching out to those three areas is people who may or may not have had an encounter with the church that was positive and seeing what their needs are for spiritual growth and really being open to what they want. So, you know, in my head, I have some ideas of what I want to do with that three acres, but it's really going to be the culmination of visiting with the folks who are around it, who have some vested interest in it, whether it's civic organizations or like the local high school or the people that live and breathe and move around in the area. So these programs you're going to be doing, um, and services. Are they going to be intense? Um, no, actually. They'll be in prairie grass. So we'll be outside, outside. Outside, outside. Outside, outside. When the weather's oh, wow. foul, that yeah. building that we have has a really beautiful open area on the first floor with a fireplace where we could do something kind of in the style of house communion, house worship. It'll be a lot of work, though, and, and a lot of imagining with people. So visiting with people, seeing what they think would be helpful to them and trying to imagine how that looks in the context of also maintaining green space. Wow. Are you thinking gardens or some type of... Yeah, for sure part of it will be we're really hoping some prairie restoration, bringing back prairie grass because the carbon negation of a prairie grass is pretty amazing but also we're talking about gardens maybe a community garden like a vegetable garden or mm-hmm. it may be something that's just more contemplative and more based on beauty 
So what kind of uh, services are you imagining? Well, since I'll be starting out just getting ordained as a deacon, I think I'll be imagining something along the lines of using, it will be within the Episcopal tradition and using Episcopal liturgies, but looking at them a little differently, maybe and finding new ways to make them resonate, whether it's a quiet evensong, a meditative evensong or evening prayer service, but something like that to begin with. Our goal is not to have Sunday services. We're on the same block as the cathedral. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking to become a Sunday congregation. We're looking to uh, provide some alternatives for people who that Mm. just doesn't resonate with their life, Mm, which is a lot of people. So the opportunity is, uh, like you said, if somebody comes into that space that you're creating, it's uh, for somebody that may be unchurched or somebody that just does not connect that way. But if they required uh, or wanted to seek pastoral care, you have that structure in place. Right. So yeah. I'll be able to provide pastoral care or spiritual direction to very different things right. and be able to provide those in that context. You know, and I think some of this comes from uh, my own background and my exposure to what the church can do in terms of spiritual trauma and recognizing that in others. So, yeah. So do you want to Share a little bit more about that. Sure. When I first felt called to the priesthood, I was, it was long enough ago that the Episcopal Church was not ordaining women. And no matter how you slice it, the message is you're good enough, but not that good. You are somehow not quite what the church needs. And at the same time that was framed, I was living in an area where there was a large church that does a lot of proselytizing, and my friends were telling me that I was going to go to hell. So the message was, either I'm going to go to hell, or I can't be a priest, or, you know, and who is God in all this? And I spent several years being pretty angry, and, you know, acting out angrily as a teenager. Didn't get into a lot of trouble, but I think that was more luck than anything else. Luck or there was a calling, you just didn't know what it was. (laughs) Well, there's that too. (laughs) (laughs) There was greater plans for you later, further down the path. Maybe I should say it wasn't for lack of trying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we've all been there. Yeah. Yeah. So really recognizing what the impact of that is, of having that message that somehow you're not good enough kind of made me really aware of how institutions and institutionalized churches can inadvertently or openly choose to other people to create a sense of us and them and that we're better than they are or that they're all broken. We have somehow have a magical cure and a magic passage back to being right with God. And all of that's, you know, ridiculous heresy God loves us because God is gracious and abundant and just flows love out through God's being to us. But that took me a long path to find a way back into understanding just how deep and wide and full the abundance of God's love is. But it has made me really mindful of what does it mean to be an institutional church and what does it mean to be part of a system and who am I leaving out in mm-hmm. the words I say, the prayers I lead, the songs I sing? So this would be from your words, not me making words for you. But 
you're now inside seminary, so you're a part of an institution. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of paradox in there. So do you see yourself being somebody that's a, a fighter from within? You know, it's so interesting. It's hard to see exactly who you are in a situation like that. And I did make an intentional choice to join an intentional community yeah. of seminary. I could have gone to Bishop Kemper School for the Ministry in Kansas and mm-hmm. come out in three years. But instead, I chose to be in a community. Part of that was to have the formation of living daily life together and worshiping together. And part of it was to learn how to care for a community. Because a wise person once told me that your seminary cohort is your first congregation. Oh, wow. Because you're learning how to work together to (laughs) make liturgy happen and to do other things. And you're working with each other's gifts and flaws and trying to balance that, making sure not everybody's doing all the work and that sort of thing. So it has been a, a learning exercise in that way. I'm not sure that I really pushed too hard against the machine. I've tried to be more of a voice of, hey, let's remember what's out there, (laughs) that there's other things to be doing out there. So I've been involved with the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women before I came to New York, and it's one of the reasons I came to New York was I was a delegate for the Episcopal Church there. And last year, I represented the Anglican Communion at the commission, and this year I'll be on the Episcopal Leadership Team. But just reminding people that there's other work that we need to be doing, you know, empowerment of women is continuing even while we're locked away for three years in this intentional kind of rarefied experience. Mm-hmm. Do we call this a project, your prairie restoration? Is it a project? It's all a project. You know, life is. So. <laughs> well, this is true. Abs- yes. Isn't life a it's project? A, it's a plot. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, but let's call it a project. Let's yes. call it a project. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So the prairie restoration project. You know, something is near and dear to me with the Radical Love Live project is reaching out to the people that are outside of church, even though the three of us sitting in this room Mm -hmm. are definitely inside church. What are some of the ways that you think you would reach out? So, so much of our whole envisioning of this is me being out and talking with people and asking the question of what resonates with you, what's important to you, what are you looking for? Are you looking for anything? And how can we help meet that need? Mm-hmm. So, so much of it is just outreach, outreach, outreach. I have a home base, right? But all of my work is radiating out into the neighborhood around there. Um, and always seeking to identify the people who mm-hmm. haven't been a part of it. And part of that is um, we are also renting space out to organizations that are working with those populations. So there's a couple different groups. We're looking to another couple of groups. And part of my job will be to be in charge of sort of hospitality for those organizations, making sure they have what they need, but also looking at ways that our work is intersecting and how can we be a bigger part of that community and help to serve them. I I just thank you because there's somebody that I know that's homeless right now and I help her where I can, but it's really difficult to see how she And this is in New York City where there's quite a few services, but Mm -hmm. still what she has to do to get food or or to get shelter or to do medical care or or she's lost all of her identification now. It's like, all right, trying to find an attorney that can help her reclaim her own identity. It's really overwhelming for this person. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, yeah, as somebody that's already down, 
and then have to go through that process, at what point do they uh, they become hopeless? Yeah, and all of the systems that are worked around those types of issues are systems that are difficult to navigate if you have all the resources in the world. But yeah. if you are coming from um, being on the edge of our systems, it's even harder to navigate those. And we're not trying to, the project does not envision reproducing social services or the feeding program that's attached to the cathedral or any of those things. It really is there for spiritual life. And that can be really hard. I spent the summer working in Kenya at a women's shelter, a domestic violence shelter, and my role there was was providing pastoral care. It was for my clinical pastoral education and part of a grant that I was working on. And when you first start interacting with these women, it's really much easier to fall into taking action, fixing things, finding Mm -hmm. answers. It's much harder to sit with and be present to these women and allow them the space to explore the relationship with God and explore where God is in their lives and to explore the narrative that they've been told over and over and over again, which almost to a person there was, if I'm good enough, God will give me good things. Mm -hmm. And what does that tell you if you're living in a domestic violence shelter, having had to flee from your entire family system? So I I learned a lot about sitting and being present Mm -hmm. and turning off the whole fix-it thing. I spent almost 30 years being a nurse. I'm big into fixing things. So having to turn that part of myself off so that I can be present and provide them the opportunity to really explore something nobody else was taking time with them for. Mm -hmm. And we all have a deep, deep yearning for God and a relationship with God, whatever we call it. We may call it something totally different. Um, We may call it God. We may call it a universal being. We may call it unconditional love. We yearn to be known by someone, fully and 100% known by someone. And so do people who are homeless, and so do people who are in a domestic violence shelter. They yearn for someone to know them. And for at least for me, a, a path towards that sense of being known is through God. So a follow-up question to that. You're kind of circling in on this question. Through this series, we've been looking at different research and people's attitudes about institutions and church Mm -hmm. and ministers, that ministers who used to be some of the most trusted people in the community are not really in the, the top five anymore. And people are going different places for marriages and for deaths and for births and the things that are traditional mm-hmm. ministry roles. So one of the things that we're looking at is what is a role of a minister in the 21st century? Yeah. And it's interesting because even if you look at the history of our church, as the church normalized itself in society and quit being something to persecute, but instead became the empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Constantine. Yeah, thank you, Constantine. the rest of them. And all of them. Um, There was a a deep shift in who the church was. And maybe this is a very necessary course correction. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, We become so much a part of the system. And and I, I don't... I don't think Jesus was a part of the system. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? Right. You know? And the, the church has always been better behaved when it's not part of the empire than when it is. Right, exactly. There's so much truth um, And that. so I think we need to start finding our prophetic voice, yes. finding how we work 
in a very systematized culture, mm -hmm. but without just replicating the same problems that people deal with day in, day out. And I don't have brilliant answers for that, but I know that for me, part of that means stepping outside of the church building. The mm -hmm. answer for me was instead to try to find a way to connect mm -hmm. and to really hear what it is that the church is doing. And I think the church needs to be lifting up those voices that are reminding them, this is not what we're about the opportunity to hear from different perspectives and to be really open to that and also really monitoring itself. Mm -hmm. In 30 years, what will the church look like? We've been grappling with that over and over and over again. And it doesn't look like it looked like 30 years ago. We forget that. You know, we forget <laughs> right, right. that it's yeah. been changing. Yeah. And we forget that before the, the 50s when, you know, everybody moved out to the suburbs and became whatever, yeah. um, <laughs> that the, the church really morphed at that point yes. mm -hmm. really significantly. And we forget that prior to that, it didn't look like what it looks like right that now. That's so true. Right. And so being afraid of that change, I think we stop the Holy Spirit from working when we try to stay the same. You know, there is the elephant in the room, church attendance is declining, mm -hmm. right? It is a reality. So what is it that somebody does as a minister in the 21st century to embrace that? And it sounds like it's some of the things you're doing. Yeah. Well, and I think we also have to really start looking at how are we measuring success? What does Ooh. it mean to be a successful church? Wow. Because... Right. For a long time, it was, excuse the, the, the language, but it was butts and pews and bucks and plates. So it was how many people yeah. you had and how, much, how many pledging units. Mm -hmm. yeah. And units. Yeah. That's <laughs> wow. how people talked about <laughs> it. Pledging units. I don't want, I don't want mm. to be a pledging unit, and yeah. I don't want to count yeah. pledging units. Yeah. But part of that is being a part of an institution that's asking for reports. You kind of fall into that numbers game. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people that are in these new Episcopal community church plants that are going on around the country, we're all kind of scratching our heads saying, I don't know how to count what we're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had a friend who said, yeah, you know, it's hard to know. Is my turning in a lot of receipts for coffee because I've spent a lot of time talking with people and, <laughs> and having coffee with them? Is that how I'm going to measure my success? But really what's successful is how the Spirit's moving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what the pastor of the 21st century needs to be is the pastor who is helping to frame how people are responding to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And maintaining the openness to that can look really different from what we're used to saying. Oh, and the Holy Spirit is a wild and wonderful thing, and you can't predict where she's going to take you and what she's going to do in your life. So trying to box her up is yeah. dangerous. I like the fact that you're using the feminine in that, too. That's kind of cool. I thought I would, you know. Uh, yeah. And, it's you okay. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in safe space here. One thing you can probably respond to as we're talking about church is also that when we're talking about the numbers and declining numbers, we're really focused on America, the United right. States of America. There are parts of the world where what is called church is thriving and growing, right. and our slice of Christian culture, which shows up in our pop culture and yeah. is kind of considered the standard, 
is really just a slice of the many, many different expressions of Christian spirituality throughout the world. Right. And there are also places where we look like we're doing really well. So that's also a thing to keep in mind. But yeah, so when I was in Kenya, I was attached to an Anglican church in Naivasha, and they're growing. Mm Mm-hmm. The the Sunday when I went down and visited the Sunday school, there was barely enough room for the children. And they just are packed in their building churches of all denominations. So we've got this rapidly growing, pretty vibrant faith. It looks more evangelical in Kenya than it does in other parts of Africa, and certainly more evangelical than what you see the Anglican Church in America, whether Mm -hmm. it's the Anglican Church of North America or the Episcopal Church as a part of the Anglican Communion. But very lively, very vibrant, and they go to church. They go to church because that's what they do. That's part of their culture. And not only do they go to church, but what I loved, I loved a couple things. Um, when I was there, I, a lot, I loved a lot of things. I loved Kenya. <laughs> but one of the things I really loved about the church there was that they go to church. It could be an hour and a half. It could be four hours. It depends on what they got going on. But church is, has got a lot of stuff in it. It's mm-hmm. not just worship. It's worship. It's music. It's presentations by all the different groups, the parish family. And then they go home to their kind of their neighborhoods and they have these neighborhood associations where they then spend the rest of the day doing Bible study. Oh, wow. And the vicar invited me to join them when they went out into the neighborhood to do pastoral calls, which here, pastoral calls, so you go into the sick, the shut-in, and the hospitals, right? <laughs> I expect it would be me and the vicar, and we'd go and see some sick people. And it was me, the vicar, every other priest that was in, we all piled into a car with the head of the neighborhood association, who was a lay leader, mm-hmm. and we'd go and just descend on these families. Wow. We went and just visited whatever families were available in the neighborhood. We'd see 10 families in an evening, and we'd go in, visit with these folks, pray with them. We'd, we'd pray. We'd read a Bible verse. Somebody would do a little exposition of what the Bible verse meant, mini-sermon. Then we'd pray again, and we'd get up, and we'd go on to the next family. The message is that you matter. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to come, we're going to intrude on your evening life on this Thursday evening. We're going to not worry about the time that we're taking away from whatever else it may be that you're trying to do because you matter, your faith matters, and the church matters. And that's what they did. Wow. And when I would talk to the people that we were visiting, it was really important to them. And it was a complete mixture. We went to the household of the lay leader who's doing literally everything that they can possibly do in the church. Their hands are on everything. And we went to the house of the lady who really, they're not really coming to church that often, but, mm-hmm. you know, they're associated with it. We went to everybody. And it was it was really cool to, to see that. And the way they've got it divided up, they go to each of the neighborhoods every two weeks. And they have these lay leaders in charge of the neighborhood who's going and talking to families and saying, hey... Vicar's going to be in the neighborhood when we come and see you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds like whatever's going on there, that that rootedness in the community, which ostensibly is what built the Church of England in the first place, is that church needs to have local roots. That's 
something that's helping fuel that thriving. Right. And it sounds like that's also something you're trying to achieve in Kansas mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. One of the reasons I was attached to the church was to try to learn some stuff from this vibrant community. Yeah. And it's not just the Anglican church that's vibrant there. I don't believe I've walked past an empty church on a Sunday. Wow. And there are things about the church in Africa I don't agree with, but their sense of community They seem to have down pretty well. And I think there's a lack of, what I hear a lot here is sort of this fear of being overly intrusive in people's lives. Hmm. And there isn't that there. And so that's one of the things I'm also trying to carry forward is not that I'm going to go out and be intrusive in people's lives, but not to be afraid to, (laughs) you know, ask the question, hey, if we were to have a church service in the middle of a prairie, what would it take to get you there? What would you need to have that be something that would interest you, you know? And, and it's interesting. It, it seems as though we've been trained not to talk about church mm-hmm. unless we're in church. Right. Yes, we have. Yeah, you know, if you're sitting in an office, you don't. And, oh, no, and part of it is this kind of politeness That's and, harsh. you know, trying to give people the yep. room to not be spiritual mm-hmm. is not to feel like you're trying to force it on someone. Okay. But there's probably some conversations that, we're missing a chance to just open up and tell our own stories by right. holding those things back. And, and I sometimes wonder, even though, you know, the Episcopal Church is always welcoming in the big tent, and we, we like to express ourselves that way, I wonder if we feel like we can't go out and talk to other people about it. What What is that messaging? What is that fear? Is part of that fear that we also maybe aren't up to the task of being open to what the other person's going to say? Are we a little afraid of how we're going to respond? Oh, wow. Um, you know, where is that? Where, what is that coming from? And I've wondered about that. Is there a sense of defensiveness too? Or is it that because we are a big tent and we don't really believe in real specific answers to dogmatic questions, is it because then it's really hard to share in a conversation with someone because they have the dogma, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah if you're so, in an evangelical yeah. church, you right. know your creed and oh, you can tell yeah. it, you Absolutely. can give three or four bullet points. Right, yes. right. And they can, make sure you know that. Yeah. And yeah. it can be scary to talk to someone like that. It can be scary to talk to someone who is an atheist and is really firm in that conviction yes. mm-hmm. because it can be hard to say, well, what do I say to that? And so maybe uh, some of what we need to do better is to help us learn how to have that conversation in a loving, caring, and open way. We talk about it a lot, but what does that really look like? Right. You know, know, when you're out on the street or, I mean, I will never forget, I was on a plane. I was still working in the secular world, and um, it was right when the Episcopal Church had affirmed same-sex marriages in the church and it was all over the newspapers. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the same year where we we were taking away God's gender too. You know, we were doing a lot of stuff. We right, were pretty right. busy, right? Yeah. I was really proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> I always think it's good to be on the front page, prophetically speaking. But um, a woman sitting next to me asked if I'd been saved. And, you know, I, I kind of looked at her and I said, well, you know, God's abundant grace. Yeah, I believe that that God's forgiving me and loves me. And, you know, so I, I kind of walked around the question a little bit. She said, oh, well, what church do you go to? And I told her, and she turned around and started reading her book. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oops. <laughs> I said, what no, conversation wait. ended? <laughs> I said, no, wait a minute. You started this conversation. What's your faith? And she said, well, 
you know, and, and told me and, and was kind of defensive, but we ended up talking a good part of the trip. But I don't think I changed her mind and she sure didn't change my mind. But mm. that wasn't the point to me. The point was, you know, you're going to start this. Let's finish this. Let's yeah, finish right, this. Right. We might go down in this plane. I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know who yeah, I'm we praying be with. All prayed up. <laughs> Yeah. But, but it, it is interesting. It feels like we've sort of that at least at the kind of progressive end of the Christian spectrum have sort of overcorrected mm-hmm. for some of those more intrusive or aggressive missionary efforts that we've seen in previous generations, right. or yeah. that we see now in some places where the you know the whole idea of the Bible thumper and some of those conversations that can be really not only just uncomfortable but can also be just one way conversations where they're not listening as much. We may have overcorrected and say, well, we're not going to be those kind of Christians. Yeah, we're not going to be that person. So we're going to... And I I find myself feeling that way from my experience when I was in middle school and was being told I was going to go to hell. I do find myself sometimes overcorrecting for that Mm -hmm. and wanting to tread more softly. And I think it's good to tread softly, but it doesn't mean you stop treading. (laughs) You you still need to, to walk into those conversations because the more you have these conversations about what God is and what unconditional love is and what spirituality is with people who may have radically different ideas than yours, the more you learn about this thing that we are all yearning for that is beyond our comprehension. It really does take all those conversations to begin to move into the space of understanding the limitation of what we know and understanding the vastness of God's love. And you don't get there by just talking to the people who believe the exact same thing that you do. You just don't. I'm always wary of conversations that end up that way. Like, I'm the right kind of believer, and they're the wrong kind of believer. Yeah. Well, actually, yeah. we're all, yeah, we're all in this of a family, and it's only when we start talking that we can mm-hmm. find the connections beneath the distinctions. right. Right. I mean, there's more in in common mm-hmm. in what we yearn for and we look for than what separates us. But we let what separates us really get in the way. And it's our loss when we do that. We, we lose out in a richer view. So I, I think inviting those conversations is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Not even trying to get to the point where we're going to agree to disagree. That's That's not anywhere. That's just keeping barriers, but really listening for where is my my truth in what you're saying and where is your truth in what I'm saying and where are our points of connection and how does that just sort of our, expand our understanding of each other and our relationship with one another. Right, yeah. right. So as we're wrapping up here, do you have any parting thoughts or things that uh, you want to share that we may not have covered? Oh, my goodness. I think we, like, solved the world's problems, didn't we? I don't know. Mm, Probably not. (laughs) I don't know. We got very close. Very close. No. Um, No matter how many books are written about spirituality and our relationship with the universe and the world and one another, we're never going to be able to close the book on this. We're never going to be able to wrap it in a tidy package. It's messy. Mm Mm-hmm. And we need to just keep on moving into, leaning into that messiness and getting comfortable with 
a little bit of chaos Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in our relationship with God. And I think it's when we step outside of the neatness and the tidiness that we start to really encounter some amazing people and some amazing prophets. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much. This is really, really great to get your insights and, um, and best luck. And thank you. Um, I stopped because I said luck. It's not really luck. We're going to send blessings to you and all yeah. your, your yeah, yeah. Indeed, great blessings to you on the... Uh, it's actually called the Bethany House and Garden Project. Blessings to you on the Bethany House and Garden Project. Thank you. In Topeka. Thanks so much for listening to Radical Love Live. If you're a first-time listener or you'd like to hear more, you can listen to our podcast archive, including recordings of our live series, on most major podcast platforms. Your support is essential. If you like what you're hearing and appreciate the content of this program, please visit our website at RadicalLove.Live to find out ways that you can help this project with your time and your resources. As always, we'd like to thank our supporters, including the Congregation of St. Savior, as well as the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And we'd also like to thank the Episcopal Church Office of Communication for their continued support. Thanks for listening to Radical Love Live, where we explore spirituality outside the boxes.